Amen. And it's good to see you. Happy New Year. It's always, I mean, I know it's artificial that one day it's one year and the next day it's another year, but who doesn't like celebrating the fact that, thank God, last year is gone. (laughs) I mean, and really that's the way we look at it and there's a good aspect to it. Like, if I think of last year, 2022, there's a whole lot of it that I wouldn't want to repeat. There were blessings that happened in the last year, but at the same time as we come to the end of that year, frankly, I'm kind of glad it's over. Um, And I, the last week of this year, I just had some horrible stuff happen with some people that I loved, and and really over the last month, several people dying, and but this week, one, two others hospitalized, and it's like oh, when's this year going to come to an end? It's almost like God was saying, in case you get too sentimental about 2022, here. And he threw up all over my life for a week so that I could go, okay, I'm ready for a new start. I'm ready for a new year. The problem with a new year is, as much as we're glad to see the last one gone, we have no guarantee that this one's going to be any better at all. In fact, we know that there's a likelihood that all the things that we hated in 22 are going to continue in 23 or accelerate and get worse. And so it's, it feels good to say, oh, it's a fresh start. And yet we know there's far from a guarantee that this year is going to be great. And so we try to delude ourselves. We go, okay, this is the year that now that I've got the holidays behind me, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to go on an exercise program. I'm going to eliminate certain people from my life that are dragging me. We have all these big, you know, resolutions that most of them we're not going to make it until next Sunday with. But we have an intention to say a new year is a new start and I'm going to do things differently. But the problem is there's no guarantee of that happening. In fact, you can pretty much guarantee that in some ways... 2023 isn't going to be significantly better than 2022. So how do you face a new year with that burden already piled on you? Well, there's a way to do it, I think, and I think it's really key. Um, And we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 today. Um, it's, It's the book right after Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, the wisest man in the earth. And in chapter 3, he talks about, it's the passage that, if you're old enough, you remember the song by the birds in the 60s, Turn, Turn, Turn. It was a huge hit. It was written in the 50s by Pete Seeger, but actually Pete Seeger, who was a folk singer, ripped off the lyrics of the song from Solomon, who wrote it, you know, 3,000 years before this, almost. So... And all Pete Seeger did was add the words, turn, turn, turn. And then he added six words at the end, a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. Um, Pete Seeger, who was a folk singer, communist, became a millionaire because of this song. He ended up giving 45% of his royalties to the song to some Jewish charities because he said it's only fair that most of it was written by a Jewish prophet. So... He did that. He took 55% for himself because he said the tune should be worth 50%. And then he said, 
I added seven words to it, and that should give me another 5%. But the charity and Pete Seeger got very wealthy, as well as the guys in the birds, from this song. So as we look at it, it's what it is as you, as you look at these, as you look at this chapter, it's Solomon writing out these couplets, you know, pairs of things or eventualities or conditions. And he has 14 couplets, each of which is a, an opposing sort of, well, there's this and then there's this, things that kind of go together, but in a way that are contrasting or even contradicting in some ways. So, but really what he's getting at, as we look at it, you'll see, is like, you know what? All kinds of stuff happens in the world. And I would suggest to you that heading into a new year, you're much better off going, you know what? All kinds of stuff is going to happen. Life happens. And to be ready for that, rather than to, to delude yourself into thinking that somehow, though things have always been this way, this is the year that everything turns around. That kind of optimism ends up real, being a real letdown. I'd rather be surprised when something turns out well than to count on it turning out well and having it flop like I should have known it would have done anyway. So let's dive into this. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time for everything. He starts out in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. Who doesn't love birth? I mean, when a baby is born, it's new life, it's so exciting. You have no idea, you know, everything that's going to ensue. But birth is hope. Birth is excitement. Birth is a thrill, generally. Death, we know that we're going to die. Well, I mean, obviously, unless Jesus comes and rescues us. But in general, people die. And yet, everything, every time they do, it feels like it catches us by surprise. And most of us don't even want to think about the fact that we're going to die too. I'd rather think about birth than to think about death. But death is real. And if you're going to deal with and prepare yourself for the future, you need to understand this year, some people you really care about are going to die. It's, it's reality. There's a time to be born and a time to die. And then he says a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. Most people don't want to do the work of actually planting stuff. So now large corporations plant the stuff by machines, and it gets processed, and, and it gets loaded up with chemicals, so that by the time we eat it at a restaurant or we buy it at a grocery store, we don't even recognize the fact that this, somebody had to actually till the ground, plant this, water it, pull weeds in order for this to happen. And here, that's kind of a metaphor for life in a way. There are things that we do that make advanced preparation for a result that's going to come. But that work isn't fun. But what I do in my life can be planning for the future, or I can just sit there at the store wanting to reap what somebody else has planted and not even understand what all's involved in the process. There are some people who approach life wanting to do something that can have long-term benefits. I mean, there are people that are this way in relationships. They don't want to put in the work to invest in a quality relationship, 
but then they somehow think that they can just insist on it and automatically have that relationship. Life's not that way. The Bible over and over again talks about sowing and reaping. You can't expect to reap if you're not willing to sow. And so he's saying, there are some things that, and I think we need to think about in this year, there are some things that we need to do that are simply preparatory, that they aren't necessarily, it's not going to pay off immediately. And then he says, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Everybody loves healing. But nobody likes the idea that there is a time to kill. Because for, for, for us, everything about death is awful. But the truth is that sometimes killing needs to happen too. Now, please, if you're thinking about killing someone, don't take this as a word from the Lord that this is what you're supposed to do. But let's at least be honest. We wouldn't be here if killing hadn't taken place. We love to think about as a nation to say, we are here and have freedom because there were people who were willing to die for our freedom. But understand this. You're not free because somebody died for your freedom. You are free because somebody was willing to kill for your freedom. Now, you may not be comfort, you know, really comfortable with that, but it's undeniable. It's no one, you know, there's no people that can live without at some point killing. I mean, you can apply it however you want. I'm not going to do it. That's not what this sermon's on. But, you know, I will tell you this. If you see Jesus as just this meek and mild, just hugging everyone and loving everyone, there is that part to Jesus. But if you read the Bible, it turns out when he shows up again, his second coming, first thing he does isn't hug a bunch of people. First thing he does is kill a bunch of people. So it has to happen. Solomon knew that. He wouldn't have had his kingdom had he not been willing to do that. Now, I've never killed anyone, to my knowledge. Um, There are some people who act like I kill them by just some of the things that I say. But, you know, ultimately, there has to be a place for... It's a part of life. And um, parse it out like you want. You'll be more prepared for life if you realize... That part of life is death, and part of death is killing, but there's healing there as well. A time to break down and a time to build up. Demolition, some people love demolition. They just love tearing everything up. Other people only want to see something that's built. I'm one of these people who I'm fascinated by demolition. It's the most exciting part. I have a friend who has a business in Las Vegas, And what they do is blow up buildings and tear down buildings. Because in Vegas, the way it works, every time a huge building now looks like it's been here for a few years, they tear it down and build a newer one because that's how you make money. My friend's life is spent going in and blowing up these buildings and plowing them away so they can build a new building. In a lot of ways, in our lives, that becomes a useful metaphor that Sometimes you have to tear some stuff down before you build some stuff up. There are sometimes when you have to create space in your life, and a part of that means I have to be willing to do some demolition in order to ultimately build what God wants me to build. Sometimes a business understands this. Sometimes you have to get rid of some stuff in order to really become who you are. In a 
in an athletic team. Sometimes you have to trade someone away or bench them or change coaches or whatever for the team to really become what it can become. If we aren't comfortable with both aspects, demolition and construction, and you'll have to answer for yourself in your life, are there some things that you should have demolished that you haven't? Or are there some efforts to build that you haven't really built? Solomon would just say, there's time for both. You need to allow for both eventualities. He goes on and says, um, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. It seems like our culture is divided up between people who can't weep and people who can't laugh. In order to be healthy, you have to be able to cry. But in order to be healthy, you have, have to be able to laugh. And sometimes those two go really well together. I mean, sometimes you're at a funeral and something strikes you as being really funny. And it makes it even more funny, the fact that you're in a funeral and you're really not supposed to be laughing. And that's what makes it funny. You know, I say, I, I know I make jokes that offend some people. I get it. Uh, sorry, that's who I am. But, and really, if I was trying to be offensive, you should see what I would sound like. But <laughs> I'm kind of trying not to be. But you know what? I can promise you this. When I make a joke and somebody comes up to me and tells me that's not funny, it's even more funny to me. (laughs) But at the same time, sometimes my laughter is a cover because I don't want to cry and I see something and I'm like, I'm either going to laugh or cry. Well, in life, it's important that you're able to do both. Don't cause yourself to toughen up so much that you can't weep. But don't cause yourself to get so is stuffed into yourself that you also don't have a sense of humor and you can't laugh. Healthy living includes both. It's okay to cry. It's also okay to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Mourning. There are things that we lose in life. Maybe it's a a relationship. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a a whole aspect of history. Maybe it's somebody that you care about who dies. And we're not taught how to mourn appropriately. As Christians, often we're taught, oh, you shouldn't mourn. The Bible says you shouldn't mourn as those who have no hope. But when it says you shouldn't mourn as those who have no hope, it means you shouldn't mourn the same way that people who have no hope. You need to have a balanced mourning, but mourning is important. Jesus at Lazarus' funeral cried. He was going through the process of mourning, even though he knew Lazarus was coming back. Do you ever think maybe he was crying because Lazarus had died, or maybe he was crying because he knew Lazarus was going to have to come back into this world? But mourning is an important aspect of healthy living. And there will be things that happen in this next year that the appropriate response is just to mourn, is just to go, I can just sit here and cry over what has been lost, but there's also a time to dance. I think as Christians, at least the way I grew up in a really fundamentalist background when I was a kid and everything, for one thing, dancing was completely off the table. Dancing was like the worst sin. Um, And I was grateful because I was a terrible dancer. 
So I'm like, yeah, I could fall back on Jesus as my excuse why I won't dance. But every culture in the world has expressions whereby physically they let out their emotions, their passions, their grief in every way. They are able to dance and move and express that. You know, but we decide, no, we don't do that. So, I mean, if somebody starts, sometimes we'll get a complaint because somebody in the worship band seems like they're like moving to the music too much. And we think that's like flesh. No, that's real. You know, sometimes if you feel like dancing, you dance. And then they'll drag you out of church. But, you know, so mourning and dancing, in a lot of cultures, when someone dies, they wail, they mourn, they really cry and they get it out of their system. And then they celebrate the life and they really dance. If you shorten either aspect of response to the realities of life, you sell yourself short. And so Psalm is like, no, there's a time for both of them. In verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. They would use stones to build stuff, but sometimes you have to reject certain stones in order to build with the stones that actually work is probably what he's referring to. As a kid, I took it a little differently. Uh, Throwing stones meant throwing stones at people. And I'm sure there's a time for that as well. If you're going to do it, you better gather them first. But then he says, um, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. An embrace is a really heartfelt hug where you hold somebody, where you're connected to them, where you're tight. And again, and I think that like in the church, people have become so paranoid that they think somehow that Well, hugging is, oh, no, that's not appropriate. But you know it when there's somebody who just really embraces you, who really holds you. Science tells us that, you know, if you hug someone for 30 seconds, then between 30 and 45 seconds, oxytocin gets released in your body, and you actually feel safe in a way that you can't from almost any other stimuli. So there's a value to embracing. It's why every culture does it, except evangelical Christianity. You know, I think that what's worse to me than not embrace, I don't care if somebody doesn't hug me. I'm not like a hugger. I'm not always going around trying to hug everybody because I just know I don't want to creep people out. But what's worse to me is people who like think they want to hug, but they don't really want to hug. So they like hug you, but they really don't want to touch you. Maybe they get gloves on, and they're like, I'm hugging you from... I'm like, stop faking it. If you don't want to hug me, don't hug me. Don't feel obligated. But there are times to really allow somebody inside your space to really squeeze them in a way that they feel like they aren't alone. I hope you have somebody in your life who will do that with you without calling the police. But it's an important part of life. But there's also a time to refrain from embracing. Sometimes isn't the right time. Sometimes when somebody's trying to express, express themselves, you don't want to just come and give them a big hug and they're like, oh, this is terrible. So understand, both types of events happen in life and there's a time for both of them. Either's okay. A time to gain and a time to lose. <laughs> you know, people who successfully make investments understand that every investment doesn't profit. Every investment doesn't gain. In order to be successful investing, 
you need to understand, I am going to lose some of the time. Now, the mainstream press is just gloating over the fact that Elon Musk is now the first person to ever lose $200 billion. And yet, what does he have left? A lot more than all of us put together, for sure. It's kind of the way it happens. But life is that way, too. If you aren't willing to take a risk, you will never ultimately end up gaining, and you have to be willing to lose in order to gain. If you don't take chances, if you aren't willing to take risks, you will automatically, by default, you lose. If you want to have gains, you have to understand. There's also a time to lose. Sometimes you take a loss in order to make a good decision. Relationships are that way, too. I mean, it's much easier to just stay away from people, not have friends, not have relationships. But you know what? By default, you lost. Now, if you reach out to people and include them in your life and make them your friends and do things with them, yeah, you're taking a risk. But if you don't do that, you've already chosen to lose. So winning isn't exclusive. Games aren't predictable. Neither is life. And then he says, there's a time to keep and a time to throw away in the end of verse 6. You know, I, I, I share every once in a while that I like watching those hoarder shows. I'm not a hoarder, but I like to remember what makes somebody keep stuff that is really detracting from their life. Because even though I might not have a whole ton of stuff, because I've watched hoarders enough that I've gotten rid of an awful lot of stuff, but at the same time, even in my mind, are there things that I keep in there that I should just really discard? I mean, the easy one is your garage, uh, your closet, your drawers. There's all kinds of places where you do this. What's much more challenging is to look at the people that you spend time with, the activities that you do, the, you know, whatever it is that's a part of your life. And have you ever set it out there and said, like they do on hoarders, okay, this stack is what you're going to keep. This stack is what you're going to discard. This stack is what you're going to donate. Shouldn't we do that with every part of our life? Should we, should we not wait until we're going to get evicted from our house, our whole life is falling apart, and now our kids are there yelling at us what losers we are, and, and then the hoarding experts come in with all their trucks and bins, and then the whole world can watch you on TV, what an idiot you are. Um, you know, and then always think, yeah, I bet they went and accumulated a bunch of stuff right after the show anyhow. But Solomon says, we all have times when we need to say, you know what? That doesn't serve its purpose anymore. I'm removing that, that thing, that relationship, that activity, that commitment, that investment. I am discarding that because I want what I keep to be worth keeping. I want what's left in my life. I want to have space in my life. The only way that I can keep the things that matter is to discard the things that don't. We all have to go through the shuffling if we're going to be healthy. And when we're coming into a new year, it's a good time to ask yourself, is there something you've been meaning to get rid of? Is there something that you've, you know, it really is just a drain on you? Maybe it's time to decide 
That goes in the throwaway stack. What's in the keep stack are the things that really matter. Time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. You do life, sometimes you're going to get a snag. Something's going to get ripped. Something's going to be damaged. But you understand, if you're not doing anything, you'll never tear anything. If you're busy, you'll tear things. But at the same time, things that are torn can be sung. They can be repaired. Sometimes something's better after you repair it rather than to put it away somewhere safe. Like, I've done this where, like, I have a shirt that I really like. Uh, most of my shirts I don't really care about because, like, almost everything I have, somebody else bought for me. But, you know, I, I start to put a shirt on, and I go, oh, I want that one to last. It's like, what am I thinking? Why do I have it if it's not to wear it? Why do I want it to last? Last for what? Do I want to be buried in, like, my three favorite shirts? You know, it's silly, but our, our whole lives are that way. We need to find the rhythm of saying, you know what? If it gets torn, it can get sewn. It's okay. And then if it's not worth sewing, then it goes into the discard pile. So a time to keep silence and a time to speak. You're like, yeah, Dave, uh, you're about running out of time right here. I think you talked long and it was funny for a pastor to lecture on there's a time to be silent. Yeah, you're silent, I speak. Get, the, get that straight. But, you know, in life, there are times when you just feel compelled to speak. You say something and then you go, why did I say that? There are other times when the situation goes by and you're like, I wanted to say something. I really wanted to, but I just didn't and I wish I had. Other times you say it like, why did I say that? I always say it, a pretty good um, rule of thumb is if you're, in a, if you're saying something difficult, if you feel like I've got to say it, don't. If you feel like, I don't want to say it, maybe you should. But at any rate, we understand. It's okay not to say something. You don't have to comment on everything. You don't have to just be a chatterbox. You don't have to be a constant, you know, well, somebody... Like something happens and you feel like, well, I need to say something. And then you say something that's really awful. When, when I'm with people who are mourning the recent loss of a loved one, I see this all the time where some of the things that people say, I'm just like, it would have been way better not to say anything. And I've, because I'm in that situation a lot of times, I've really never had anyone come and tell me that what I said was really helpful but I do have people come and say, you know, the fact that you were there really meant a lot. They're not going to remember what you say. There's a time just to be silent. There's a time to listen. There's a time to wait and pause. But there is a time to speak. May God help us as we go into the next year know the difference between when we ought to speak and when we ought to shut up. And so Solomon understands that. Winding down towards the end here in verse 8. There's a time to love and a time to hate. Um, love doesn't pervade everything. There's also, there are also things that should be hated. And you become less of a person if you just want to love everything and everyone. God is pure love. He is love. And yet, there are certain things that he hates. 
Because if you love someone, you hate to see them doing something that's destructive. You hate to see them doing something that's damaging them. And so knowing the difference between what to love and what to hate, that's a part of our task as we move forward in life. As we move forward in the next year, God, please help me to love what I need to love and hate what I need to hate. Because quite often, the two get completely reversed in our minds. And then finally, he says, a time of war and a time of peace. There are times when you just have to throw down. There are times when it's like, I am willing to die on this hill. I am not going to just let this one slide by. If there wasn't war, you wouldn't be alive today, and neither would I. But at the same time, there's also a time for peace. Discerning between the two, this year, there will be times when you need war, but there will be times when you want to fight, but what you really need is peace. Discerning the difference is fine, but also when you understand that, now, if in this year you feel like you're being attacked, you don't freak out. Because you're like, okay, I knew. There are times of war. It's a part of life. At the same time, when you experience a time of peace, you're like, man, I haven't had anybody really attack me in a while. You go, I'm not going to act like something's wrong with that. I'm glad for that too. I will take either case. I can't move forward in my life believing that everything is going to be roses, everything is going to be peace, everyone's going to like me, everything's going to happen the way I want it to. All I have to do is say it and God has to do it. That's delusional. And Solomon, and then I love verse 11. He wraps it all up by saying that God has made everything beautiful in its time. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to, to pluck up. His time. In his timing, everything ends up being beautiful. And I love having that reality that whatever happens this year, in the end, in the big picture, it's going to be beautiful. So I'm optimistic about this year, even though there may be war, even though there may be violence, even though I may lose, even though I may be under attack, even though I don't get anything that I really want, I see it and I believe in a God who makes everything beautiful, and then also he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to end. So Solomon says, there's something in your heart that's eternal, but you don't see time is against you understanding everything because you can't see the beginning and the end. And as much as you would love to, and it's funny, you know, Christians, more often than not, they love to fight about the beginning, how it all started, and the end, how it all ends. And he goes, no, you don't know that. What you know is eternity is in your heart, and what you experience in life is something that ultimately, when you look at it, you go, I know. That because there's eternity in my heart, I see the big picture, and I believe that ultimately all of this is going to turn out. All things will work together for good. That he has it all in control. So I can approach a year without that reticence of, oh no, 
we're going to mess it up. Oh, no, this is the end of civilization. Oh, no, we can know. All of these things that he lists, these 14, 28, really, um, situations, we're going to have them all. How do you prepare for them? See, the thing that makes the future hard is that it's so uncertain. I sit here today, and I go, this is January 1st. But I'm not sure what's going to happen later on today. And I'm not sure what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. And I have all these fantasies in my head about how, if I was God, this is how I would do it. And like, God always laughs at that. Because my plans are so far from what's best, ultimately. So here I am. What do I do? I become depressed. I become anxious. I become stressed. I become just worried because I look at the future and I just go, man, this could get bad. Understanding this scripture takes us to another place where we can appreciate the fact that know all these things, some of them you like, some of them you don't like, they're going to happen. Probably this year, they're going to happen. You will experience all of these. Do you embrace those as a part of life, as a bigger part of the part of what, of the whole of what God is doing to bring beauty into the universe? Or are you going to fight against the individual things that happen as they happen? The pressure is off once you decide that life happens. That things are just going to go on all these different ways. They're all legit, and I can't control them. And they're not my responsibility. In fact, responsibility means I am willing to respond to whatever happens. So either I have responsibility and I go, you know what? If it's war or peace, I know how I can respond. If it's sowing or reaping, I know how I can respond. Birth or death, I know how I can respond. War or peace, I know how I can respond. All of a sudden, the pressure's off. Especially if you believe the truth of verse 11 that God is going to make everything beautiful in his time. Eternity is in our hearts. So now he elevates us to a point where what happens? I don't really have to worry a lot because whatever happens, I'm prepared for that. I'm okay with that. I believe in a God who's working in that. It also prevents great disappointment because if I have certain images in my mind of what I expect for this year, for 2023, some of them I'm going to be greatly disappointed. But if I look at 2023 and go, there will be births and deaths, there will be war and peace, there will be planting and reaping. If, if that's the way I look at it, I can't possibly be disappointed because when something undesirable happens, I go, he said it would, it's part of life. And it's all going to be beautiful in the end. And so that disappointment that so cripples us and steals our present. And see, all of these responses, what they do, they don't affect the future. The future hasn't happened yet. The future is only imaginary at this point. It's only what we project, project it to be. But the now, that's where the treasure lies. That's where eternity is buried in our hearts right now. And if I let anxiety about the future steal my present, it's amazing because it ends up becoming self-fulfilling. 
It ends up becoming, it steals now, and then it causes tomorrow to be crummier because I'm wearing myself out stressing over this. There are people who live their lives feeling greatly entitled or feeling like they are victims. Now, there's no doubt about it. There are people in the world who are victims. He could have easily put that in here too. There are people in the world who have been treated horribly. The question isn't whether that exists or not. The question is, do you approach the future thinking that you are entitled to something? Because you know what? I get it. I know your college professor is telling you that you have certain entitlements. Life doesn't work that way. Sorry. If you think that you deserve something else, if you think that the fact that you're a victim qualifies you for some kind of special treatment, life doesn't work that way. And you're going to be incredibly disappointed when it doesn't turn out the way that you thought it was going to turn out. But if I am willing to say, now, again, if you're a victim, I'm not saying that, oh, that's a good thing. No. If you're a victim, maybe sometimes, I don't want to, I shouldn't say there's a time to kill, right? But um, the whole thing is, does what has been done to me that hurt me in the past cause me to in any way live in that and it's going to help me in the future? Certainly not. It doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. I have to get to the point where I let go of whatever I thought I was entitled to because the truth is I'm pretty much entitled to hell. That's what I deserve. So now everything else I get other than hell is a bonus. Now, how do I approach life? See, when I, when I accept every aspect of life as being a part of life, then all of a sudden I become free from all of that. And the most beautiful thing that results when I live in this is that I begin to learn humility. I, and humility is something that we're kind of afraid of because we think, oh, it'll just cause you to get stepped all over. No, humility is actually the key to being healthy psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way. Humility is key. Like, make less of yourself and you're set free. All of a sudden, the things that you were worried about, they're not your problem anymore. The people who destroy themselves, and I have done a couple of visits to a mental hospital this week, and it's like, it's always the same. It's like, life doesn't think I'm as important as I am. That's what mental illness ultimately is, quite often, is I cannot accept who I am, so I'm going to make an imaginary me that's much more significant than this world seems to think I am. It destroys you. See, it's looking at the future and saying, I believe that this and this and this are going to happen, and I'm going to be something special. It's not healthy. It's humility. That's why Jesus, the Bible says, humble yourself. Paul says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I know that's scary. The idea of humbling yourself and taking a chance on God. But that's really what it is to be a Christian, is to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'll take whatever comes. Whatever happens, I'm okay with it. Now, for me, a good exercise is to go through the, these, um, these couplets and, and to take each one of them. And they're not all gonna hit everybody the same. But like, I went down them this week and I go, 
okay, a time to be born, I'm good with that, a time to die, I need to spend some time thinking about that because death seems so unfair and un- unreal. Plant and harvesting, yeah, maybe I haven't been doing enough planting for something that's going to come in the future. A time to kill, maybe I need to kill somebody. No, <laughs> time to heal, yeah. A time to break down, a time to build up. How long has it been since I just wept? How long has it been since I really laughed from the belly? When have I allowed myself to mourn? When have I driven myself to dance? You know, when have I accepted gain? When have I accepted loss? When have I torn? When have I sewed? Chances are with all of these things, love and hate, There's one of them that you connect with well, and there's one of them that you're kind of scared of. And I think a good exercise is to go down and say, in the next year, I am okay if some people hate me. I am okay if I'm not embraced by anyone. I'm going to be fine. I am going to see God working in my life, even if it involves losing someone very important to me. If we go through this list, I'm telling you, it's scary, but it will set you free completely. Because once you can accept all of these things, and maybe you just put on the bird's song and listen to it. It's easier than reading it. But, you know, if we can accept all of these things, this is going to be an amazing year because we're not going to spend any time worrying about what might happen And after something happens, we're not going to spend any time being upset and bitter and resentful about it. We're just going to go, it's life. I'm not making a big deal about me. I'm going to embrace and accept whatever happens as being a part of God's beautiful plan in the big picture. And if we do that, to me, it's a great preparation. I know looking at the new year would be much easier for me to give you all the reasons why you should be totally optimistic. And then, you know, by March, you'll think I was a liar. I guarantee you, with all these things, but any of this stuff can happen, you're not going to say I lied to you. Because most of these things will happen in the next year. The question is, am I okay with it? Am I ready for it? Am I participating in this thing that we call life? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... (coughs) this beautiful and poetic reminder that although eternity is in our hearts, although we follow you because we know that you end up making everything beautiful, we've seen bits and pieces of it, but we're still here and alive, and so we don't have the eternal perspective, but God, we so want to have it, and yet it's so hard for us to accept life as we move into a new year. It's hard for us to say, we'll be fine, even if the worst things happen. And yet we know, until we can be fine with that, we'll never be fine with anything at all. Lord, I thank you that you sent your son to die for us, to allow his body to be broken and his blood to be shed, so that he could show us That even that, suffering and death, is not only not a threat to your program, 
but it becomes one of the most beautiful aspects of eternity, of what you do and what he did for us. Help us to follow his example and to know that there's beauty beneath the surface of everything that happens, regardless of whether it's something we're comfortable with or uncomfortable with. And I pray that you'll especially deal with us on whichever aspects in this list are uncomfortable for us. And we can see this is what life is right now. And we welcome and embrace it as the vehicle through which you reveal yourself to us, through which you bless us, through which you deliver us. Thank you for making everything beautiful in its time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.